Hello, Katawanto. Here come the Pacific waves from RNZ Pacific. Me, Koroi Hawkins. Coming up... Is that the military might have some responsibility for making sure that the separation of powers is guaranteed. Fiji military is still casting a shadow over politics as the new Fijian government attempts to effect change. Also... It's a situation that's become increasingly common in various provinces around the country. Papua New Guinea police are working hard to rein in violence in Oro province. And later on... Housing is a big thing. Getting the, the bare essentials, um, basic uh, food items. As New Zealand's North Island braces for more wet weather, social workers say the impact of the weekend floods could be felt for months. It's been a busy first month for Fiji's new coalition government, which has set about restructuring the public service hierarchy amid constant criticisms from the opposition group. As the first new government since the country's return to democracy in 2014, there are understandably teething issues. However, the overall responsibility of the military for the well-being of Fiji and all Fijians under the constitution is a cause for concern going forward. I spoke with Victoria University of Wellington professor in comparative politics, John Frankel, about the first few weeks of Sitiveni Rambuka's new government. Uh, government's been going around all the ministries, going around the churches, going around the local communities, um, talking to people, lots of um, commemorations, celebrations, lots of discussion, a, 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 a significant change in the flavour of government and the way government is done compared to the uh, Fiji First Administration. On the other hand, of course, on, first on the uh, uh, 1st of January, and then on several occasions within in early January, uh, Bainim Rama and the former Attorney General had made all sorts of allegations about the supposed breaches of the Constitution by the new government, most of which are nonsense. Um, the um, uh, the uh, claims that asking people to resign is uh, unconstitutional is wrong. It's not unconstitutional to ask people to resign. It's unconstitutional to force them to resign. There are constitutional processes which are being gone through in the case of the police commissioner and uh, several others. So, um, yes, there are certainly lots of attempts to destabilize the government going on, but uh, these have not been successful, and Banim Rama walked out of the constitutional offices commission uh, last week. Uh, the government clearly has a majority on that commission and therefore can do pretty much as it as it pleases. The um, opposition has a minority and is unable to block some of the important changes. Uh, uh, asking the police commissioner to step down, which is suspended at the moment, is um, almost inevitable because he, uh, the, the police force has brought in many of the current ministers for questioning over recent months in, in ways that were clearly very partisan and very much oriented towards uh, trying to uh, advantage Fiji first and disadvantage the opposition. We we were obviously in Fiji for that Prime Minister's election and, and just some of, some of the conversations were sort of wondering whether... Rambuka's rhetoric of, you know, um, congratulating Fiji first on, on, well, acknowledging Fiji first for the work it had done and that it was taking over and being very sort of statesman-like in terms of the their uh, coming into power, whether that would continue or whether they would be vindictive and use some of the tools that Fiji first has created <laughs> and used against them in the past uh, on the now opposition uh, leader and his, and his group. So uh, uh, what is your sense of 
that side of things in terms of the the way that the current government is behaving? Well, uh, the um, Let the Love Shine kind of campaign theme of uh, the People's Alliance uh, uh, was very much one of no recriminations that they wouldn't be going after people. And I think that's the case. They haven't gone after Bainamarama. Um, they've, they've gone after people who are clearly spoilers of the new government, including the police commissioner and the former attorney general. Um, the, they've dispensed with the services of the um, CEO of Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, who seems to have been paying himself more than the prime minister earns. Um, there are a couple of permanent secretaries, but there are also permanent secretaries and people in key positions in government under Fiji First whose services have been retained, have been redeployed to other parts of the uh, civil service. So it's by no means a kind of crude victimization sort of approach. They seem to be approaching this on a sort of case-by-case basis. Now, turning to this this. The, the legal clause or the clauses that are that are vague around the all assuming power of the military in certain situations in Fiji and, and how much of a threat that is or a perceived threat to to the government let's say overstepping um, its constitutional I don't know mandate and triggering the military into taking over and resetting everything uh, how, how can you explain a bit about the, the laws involved and why they're of concern? Well, yes, the um, 2013 Constitution revived this provision that existed in the 1990 Constitution that gave the military responsibility for looking after the well-being of the Fiji people. Of course, when that was first introduced in 1990, it was as part of an ethno-nationalist constitution that was seeking to uh, codify indigenous paramountcy in the state. After that, uh, at that point, I think the uh, Fiji military contemplated briefly uh, uh, assuming power in an unconstitutional way for 16 years. But it didn't do that. And after that, by the early 1990s, uh, things had calmed down. There was a, a desire to reinforce civilian government, for the military to keep out of politics. It's only really in the wake of the spate coup that um, the uh, uh, Mohamed Aziz um, uh, um, re- rehabilitated this provision in the 1990 constitution and uh, suggested that it still applied under the 97 constitution and then they put it in the 2013 constitution. Now what does this mean? Now what it could mean just about anything. What, what does it mean to look after the welfare of the Fiji people? You could interpret that to mean anything at all. I noticed that uh, before the um, final result when Rambuka perhaps misguidedly uh, complained to the military commander about the glitch, about the uh, counting of the election ballots, the, uh, the the military commander said that that wasn't within his remit. In other words, he thought that didn't fall under this Section 131 of the Constitution that gives the military right to intervene to protect the well-being of the Fiji people. But after the election of the new government in early January, the uh, military commander, uh, Johnny Kalaniwai, did make a, a, a peculiar statement where he said that the, uh, he expressed concern about the ambition of the government and about the speed at which things were moving. And he also uh, suggested that the military might have some responsibility for um, making sure that the separation of powers is guaranteed. Now, that's usually a role for the courts. 
not for the military. So one has to be careful about this kind of expansive uh, understanding of the role of the military in the new Fiji. I think uh, there need to be further discussions about what that actually means. It was it was interesting to me being um, at Parliament as um, Frank Banimarama emerged after losing that um, uh, Prime Minister's election. And his words, this was his sort of gift to Fiji, the 2013 constitution, democracy in action. It, it wasn't, the sense for me, wasn't a man defeated. It was more almost... Uh, allowing this this to to continue and even the the language from ayaz and um him mistakenly calling frank banimarama still the prime minister and this sort of behavior it does it the, is the is the sense in terms of fiji first sort of uh uh licking their wounds and waiting to come back or is it do you think uh an opportune time for for Frank Bainimarama to bow out, you know, of politics and say, you know, it's a full conversion from coup to democracy to a smooth transition of power. Well, I think that statement, I think Bainimarama came out of the parliamentary chamber and yes, he said the 2013 constitution was his legacy and he said this is democracy. But also it had a tone of sort of blaming Sadelpa for having brought about the outcome because they're the party with three seats that decided the outcome in favour of the opposition rather than Fiji first. And since then, I think Bonimarama and uh, Ayas Sayed Kem have been trying to do three things. Firstly, they've been trying to provoke uh, some kind of military action under Section 131, this uh, provision about the well-being of the Fiji people. But the uh, commander of the military forces has twice, I think, appeared alongside uh, the Minister of Home Affairs and one time alongside the Prime Minister as well, saying, no, he's uh, uh, supporting the government of the day, perhaps conditionally, but nevertheless, he's giving them support. Uh, secondly, um, Bainam Rama has seen the president and has sought, presumably sought to get the president to take some kind of action, um, although that, uh, uh, the president takes his legal advice from the current Attorney General. So there was a meeting with uh, Siromi Tarangi straight after that. And thirdly, there's been signs that uh, of continuing efforts to try to break the allegiance of the uh, Sadelpa, the small three-seat party, to the new government. Uh, The uh, former general secretary of Sadelpa made another statement about a week ago, uh, critical, saying that the, the coalition deal was defunct because it hadn't been honoured. But this was denied by party leader Viliami Gavoka and the Sadelpa MPs, and uh, Duro is overseas, I understand, so it's unlikely to uh, have the desired repercussions. Since December in Oro province in Papua New Guinea, the police have been undertaking a campaign to rein in violence. Because of the extent of the criminality, the region had got the name Cowboy Country, according to local media, as an undermanned police force had been struggling to cope. So now local police have been reinforced for a three-month period with officers from other parts of the country. Dozens of outstanding cases of rape, murder and armed robbery are being more fully investigated in what is dubbed Operation Stabilizing Oro. The local police commander, Chief Inspector Ewai Segi, says a record number of arrests and charges have been laid. 
Our correspondent in PNG, Scott Wyde, says the province has been riven with violence in recent years and he told Don Wiseman why he thinks this is happening. It's a situation that's become increasingly common in various provinces around the country and the last time we spoke it was about Medang, this time it's about the Oro province and it's basically a collection of issues and one of them is the large number of youth that are being chucked out of the education system ending up in the province with little or no opportunities. Second one is the high rate of uh, alcohol consumption and abuse and that was one of the reasons that triggered this large tax on alcohol companies, alcohol production companies. Okay, so this new tax, it came out in the uh, November budget, but yes. there's always been this danger in PNG that that sort of tax, all it does is encourage the the home brewers and the the illegal distillation. And is that what has happened here? Yeah, it's it's a double-edged sword where, you know, the taxes come in uh, and, and then the substitution effect happens and you, you have, have this spike in homebrew consumption and the crime also spikes along with it. I mean, we've, we've seen that happen in the US where substitution happened and, and it's the pretty much the same formula that, that repeats itself in, in situations like this uh, in, in Papua New Guinea. The Oro province has got a very progressive governor in Gary Jufa. What's he got to say? The governor's really concerned about the crime spike that's happened in the last five years. And that's primarily because of the factors that I mentioned, the high number of youth in, in the communities with little or no opportunities, high rate of alcohol consumption and abuse, uh, and limited manpower in the, of police in the, in, the, in the province. Police haven't been able to adequately contain the petty crimes that have happened. And the governor said that, you know, people have become, the criminals have become emboldened. They've gone out and done even bigger crime. Uh, and that's the reason why the current operations been put in place and they've brought in uh, forensics experts from Port Moresby plus additional manpower to deal with the backlog of cases that have existed for some time and also conduct operations with the community, in, into the communities and, and clamp down on, on the problems that have become worse than they were previously. How is that going? He is confident that Things will be brought under control. One of the problems that is becoming very obvious is the lack of control that the elders have in the communities. Now, previously, when they spoke, people listened. Now, there's a large youth population that don't abide by the community rules, don't listen to the elders, and that's a large part of the source of the problems that we're having in, in Oro Province. So, custom attitudes are breaking down. Yes, yes. And and just to give you an example, like I was there year before last because I went to school there while driving along the main road. You know, there's so many people, uh, so many young people just drunk on the road. And that just gave an indication of how bad the problem is with, with uh, alcohol consumption. As New Zealand's North Island braces for more wet weather, a Pacifica social service provider says the impact of the weekend floods will be felt for months by some of Auckland's poorest families. A spokesperson for the Fono, Frank Koloi, says the organisation has been inundated with calls for support, including accommodation and food parcels. He says some of the city's poorest suburbs are among the hardest hit. Mr. Kuloi says he's worried there might be a large number of families who don't know where to ask for help. 
housing is a big thing, getting the, the bare essentials, um, basic uh, food items, and also some uh, dry clothes and towels. It's very tough, and people are starting to think about the next step. School is about to start, and they were already struggling to get their, their children ready for school. New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel Sepoloni, says there's a long list of people who've pulled together to help during Auckland's flooding. We've had council workers, we've had government agencies, we've had iwi, civil defence staff, the Red Cross, community organisations, volunteers, teachers, medical professionals, church and religious leaders and so many others supporting people in whānau across Tamaki Makaurau. And to all of those people, I simply say thank you. The former world heavyweight boxer David Tua was among those helping at an emergency centre in Mangere. He says as a South Auckland community man, he had to do what he could to help. So it might be a uh, food, you know, it might be clothes, it might be uh, a home to stay. So uh, I think at the end of the day, this is uh, a pop-up uh, here in uh, Mangere Bridge. And uh, the community our leaders are here uh, make sure that our people can come here and uh, get the support that they need. Meanwhile, Christchurch's Tongan community spent the weekend taking care of an airplane full of people stranded when their flight was diverted. The flight from Tonga to Auckland was diverted on Friday night when an Auckland airport runway had its lighting damaged. Paia Helotu Fifita, a Christchurch Tongan community leader, says local families and churches took in about 70 people with more choosing to stay in the airport terminal. They felt so welcome. They felt like a home and number of them uh, didn't want to leave. They were enjoying the love and the passion from the, the family. But, uh, yeah, we're just happy that they felt comfortable, especially when time like this, yeah, stranded in different towns. Meanwhile, weather warnings for the Upper North Island in New Zealand for Tuesday have been upgraded from orange to red. Met Service says the decision comes after collaborating with local authorities and concerns about the significant impact that further heavy rainfall on already saturated ground may cause. A brief look at some Pacific sports stories from the weekend before we go. New Zealand won both the women's and men's finals of the Sydney Sevens to increase their lead at the top of the World Series standings. The Black Ferns overpowered France 35-0 in the women's final and the All Black Sevens thrashed South Africa 38-0 in the men's. The Fiji men's team claimed bronze with a 29-5 win over France. New Zealand is at the top of the men's World Series standings followed by South Africa, Samoa, France and Fiji. Turning to the Oceania Under-17 Football Championship, New Zealand had to fight hard to beat New Caledonia for their eighth consecutive title in Suva at the weekend. Nico Bruce's first half goal was enough for a 1-0 win for the junior All-Whites. Craig Stephen has more. New Zealand finished the game with just 10 men after Luca Kovny picked up a second yellow card for a professional foul. New Caledonia pushed that numerical advantage, dominating play for most of the second half, but New Zealand held on boosted by several good saves from goalkeeper Matthew Ford. Despite the loss, by virtue of winning their semi-final, New Caledonia have qualified for the Under-17s World Cup in Peru later this year, alongside the junior All-Whites. The final began with a minute's silence for young New Caledonia player Ruben Catan, who died recently in France. Catan was the New Caledonia captain at the 2018 Oceana Under-17 tournament. In tennis, a Papua New Guinea girl has won an under-14s tennis competition in Australia. The National reports Coco Harkina has topped the Victorian Junior Grass Court Championship, beating Australian Charo Brown. 
Koko, who mostly competed in the under-12 division last year, is part of the Oceania Tennis Federation's junior team touring Australia this year. Her mum, Diane Hassavi, told The National that her daughter was progressing well in the tour following an impressive 2022 season in junior tournaments in Australia and topping the under-12 division at the Oceania Regional Junior Tournament in New Caledonia. And last but not least, Solomon Islands hotshot Rafael Leai has signed for Bosnian footballing giants FK Velez Mostar to become the first Solomon Islander to ever sign for a professional European club. Leai signed a one-year contract alongside club director Sanjin Arijic after a successful trial for the Rodeni. The contract includes the possibility of extending the contract for another year. Leai began his playing career at Henderson Eels FC, for whom he played in the OFC Champions League. After playing for the Solomons at various age group levels, Leai made his international debut in 2022. Velez was one of the most successful clubs in Yugoslavia, finishing runner-up in the National League three times in the 1970s and 80s and reaching the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup in the 1974-75 season. That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and we can follow next time more.